Good evening, and welcome to the beautiful historical marionette theater. Tonight we're going to be visiting a mid to late 40s drama and uh, crime film all about uh, organized crime and uh, somebody who's visiting an old friend's family in the South. Please take your seats. The show is about to begin. I'm afraid Gertie can't make it tonight. You see, the lounge singer in tonight's movie brings back memories of her grandmother, and she's feeling a little under the weather. Oh, that's sad to hear, but uh, I guess our old pal Stutzi is on standby tonight. Stutzi! It's good to hear you again, Stutzi! Oh, she's uh, just a little shy, and I think she's hanging out downstairs. No, but hey, I know. You know, uh, <laughs> Toppy, I hear that it's around 30 days or so uh, before we're sitting on the surface of the sun. Um, you know, the, that season they call summers just around the corner, and usually when the seasons are changing is when they get all that bad weather in parts of the country. That's right. Um, uh, we'll, like a little later on, we'll have hurricane season starting. We will. Now, um, some of the things that uh, we're going to mention, well, I'll just take a moment to mention, put things into perspective. We're, we're of course, getting ready to discuss our film tonight. But uh, as we are wanting to do, we want to just uh, check in with each other. Now, um, some things that happened on this date, which is May 20th in history. In 1873, blue jeans are patented by Levi Strauss, not just uh, for cowboys. And uh, in 1927, uh, closer to the time that this movie came out, by a couple decades anyway, Charles Lindbergh, that, that uh, famous pilot who uh, his kid later went missing, he took off on the first solo non-stop transatlantic flight. Wow. And, um, you know, Toppy, yesterday was National Devil's Food Cake Day. Do you like I did. Little... I did not know that. Do you like yourself some chocolate cake? Sure do. I, I'm of that generation that um, I, I enjoyed that comedian that we don't talk about too much these days because he's gone to court about things. But, you know, he used to sing this song in his stand-up act about uh, dad is great, gave us the chocolate cake, you know, for breakfast. Oh, okay. Hi. <laughs> I probably saw that, but I forgot. Um, you know what? I've never seen a devil in devil's food cake, but that's just me. <laughs> in my family, we had a take on the uh, chocolate cake. Uh, it, it, I guess it, it must have been something from the 50s. Mom and my grandmother used to make it. But you, you put mayonnaise in the cake. And, of course, that's in place okay. of eggs. And uh, it's supposed to make the, the chocolate richer. But mom and grandma also were one to put a peanut butter frosting on it. So that was a staple oh in our my. family. Oh, my, oh, my. I got to tell you, the family birthday cake uh, that my grandmother and mother made for years and years and years for my birthday, because it was my favorite, was uh, a chocolate cake with chocolate frosting. And it was a dual, uh, two layers in between was kind of like a chocolate pudding kind of thing, Ooh. kind of, uh, just kind of stick. Anyways, um, that's what I remember. And uh, uh, it's 
it was just chocolate death, and uh, that, <laughs> which is what I wished. <laughs> but about the time I came around, I had to break with tradition because you know I I am that kid that grew up in the eighties, and uh, I had to have a strawberry cake with strawberry icing, and oh. I'd forgotten how disgustingly sweet that was uh, oh. a few years oh. back i decided to revisit that chapter and the thing tasted like a crushed up crayon <laughs> a crushed up crayon does not sound all that sweet <laughs> but uh, yeah we're this weekend we're going to be putting our air conditioners in their places because we don't have one of those modern homes people and, uh, you know, some of us folks in the Northeast, we uh, didn't have that uh, in the building plan. But uh, Right. I can't have a, a air conditioner because the electric is so old in the chicken coop. It's got glass fuses. Oh. And it would totally brown out. I mean, it would just, it would just, it wouldn't work. I can't, I can't have a fan in the window going and toast, toast in my toaster. It'll oh. just. It'll just blow the fuse. <laughs> I, I once rented a room when I uh, lived in Texas just for one year, but uh, it, ha- it was a house, an older house with, you know, uh, older wiring. Of course, you know, anyone technical would tell you it's 110 wiring, whatever. But it, it, the same kind of thing happened. If somebody turned on their air conditioner, heaven forbid, in a hot Texas summer, um, the refrigerator in the common room would uh, trip the breaker, and suddenly the groceries you bought went spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, speaking of uh, spoiled, cla- uh, <laughs> yeah, speaking of old clabbered houses and dilapidated things, the major set piece for this movie is a is a wonderful old hotel down in the Keys. And uh, that's where all the action takes place. It sure does. And uh, I, I, I'm getting a signal from downstairs. Well, I think she's ready. So, Toppy, shall we let uh, our stand-in uh, do her part for tonight? By all means. Okay, here we go. Frank McLeod finds himself traveling the coast of Florida during the off-season when he decides to drop in on an old war buddy's family hotel. Just as he arrives, news begins to spread of two escaped prisoners and storms on its way. As they batten down the hatches, it becomes clear gangsters have moved into town. Will Frank become a good Samaritan and blow the whistle? Will the baddies get away with the murder? Grab a raincoat and your scout handbook. There's lots of knots in this one. It's time for Key Largo with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Take it away, fellas. What do you get when you take a dash to the silver screen? A pinch of golden oldies? And a smidgen of screaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host, DJ and Toppy. I am all ready for this little party we have here going on. Um, Now, of course, uh, if you are not already checking us out on the YouTubes, you can go to our page at matineeminutia.com. I'll let you spell that. 
And if you click on the uh, little TV tube there logo for YouTube, you could see us. And uh, I'm sitting right out here outside the grand old hotel, having myself a, a beverage in a hurricane glass. Because, you know, in the South, they like to party when there's bad weather. You, you got to get together when you want to feel safe. Right. And in this movie, uh, the hurricane is almost a character uh, in this story. Yes, everyone's waiting for it to show up. It's kind of like that that uh, distant relation that you've invited to Thanksgiving, but you're hoping doesn't come. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well done. Do we do we have a a, a trailer for this guy of this movie? I don't actually, because uh, you know, for this period of time, a lot of the uh, the theater releases there, uh, the kind of the the previews, would be all narrator talk and oh, okay. just the action scenes. But uh, that does bring to mind that I forgot something. Shh. Oh. Um, I won't say nothing. <laughs> I'm just going to insert this where there is a button and no name on it. And uh, we'll be none the wiser. <laughs> All right. You, you take the lead and continue. And... Okay. So, Toppy, um, one of the things we like to do is put people's minds to what's going on. Uh, you know, what, what do we normally do here? Well, we uh, like to set the stage. So, what was... Tell us what was happening in 1948. Okay, so way back in 1948, some of our parents and grandparents were just youngins. Uh, World War II had ended six years before... I'm uh, sorry, after six years. Three years before 1948. So uh, still fresh in the memories of folks as this movie came out. Uh, now, in 48, the stock car racing organization, NASCAR. Now, uh, my, my sister has an ex-husband, and she is uh, an intellectual type. So when she and he were together, rather than calling it NASCAR, she would call it NASCAR, as if it were French. <laughs> <laughs> it was founded by Bill France Sr. And uh, in, uh, in uh, the history of integration... McCollum versus the Board of Education, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that religious instruction in public schools violated the Constitution. Hmm, I think we're forgetting something here. All right, so uh, ABC Television Network first began broadcasting in 48. WTVR began television services that year. And it was the first TV station in the South. Can you believe it? Back in the 40s. When TV was starting in 48, uh, three years after World War II, they were just getting their first TV station south of D.C. Nice. Uh, so in 48, Walt Disney Productions' 10th feature film, Melody Time, was released. It was Disney's fifth of six packaged films to be released through the 40s. Also in film, David Lean's Oliver Twist, which was based on Charles Dickens' famous novel, premiered in the UK. It's banned in the US for three years because oh. alleged anti-Semitism depicting master criminal Fagin 
of course, played by, now this isn't Star Trek, but it is sci-fi, uh, Star Wars actor Alec Guinness was in this back in 48. Much younger, yes. Yes. All right, so a few more things in 48. President Truman, he signed Executive Order 9981, which ended racial segregation in the armed forces. So we are marching as one now. The House Un-American Activities Committee, and now this this uh, uh, holds bearing in the discussion of the film tonight. The House Un-American Activities Committee holds its first ever televised congressional hearing feature confrontation day between Whitaker Chambers, who was a senior editor at Time Magazine, and Alger Hiss. No, I didn't make a sound. It's Hiss, the last name. Secretary General of the United Nations Conference on International Organizations. Say that three times fast. This was the convention that created the UN Charter. So they were putting things together then. And uh, just a few less things here. The first of the Kinsey Report, the, the famous uh, psychologist, therapist, the Kinsey Reports on Sexual Behavior in the Human Male was published in '48, And Charles Lazarus started Children's Supermart. This was a business that was a predecessor of Toys R Us in D.C. in '48, And it started off as a baby furniture retailer. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we got uh, lots of celebrity voice uh, that year, folks. I'm going to rip through them because there's so many. We got to, we got your Kenny Loggins. How about that? Larry Harvard. Do you know him? Harvey? Larry Harvey. American co-founder of Burning Man. Did you know that? Well, he was born that year in 48. Ronnie Van Zant, Rock musician. John Carpenter. Director and producer. Rick James. African-American urban singer-songwriter. Alice Cooper, hard rock singer. Christopher Guest, he's an actor. Barbara Hershey, you know her. She uh, invented the chocolate bar. No, she didn't. Uh, she's an actress. Bernadette Peters, you know her from film and theater. Billy Crystal, that uh, famous actor and comedian. Oh, here's the uh, here's the star. Oh Trek. yes. John Delancey, actor, law, L.A. Law, and Star Trek. In the hand that rocks the cradle. Yes. Uh, Steven Tyler, he was a musician. Diane Weist, actress. Bud Court, actor. Al Gore, 45th vice president of the... Al Gore, the 45th VP of the U.S. He invented the internet, you know. Yes, and he (laughs) talked to everyone like we were first graders. Oh, Rhea Perlman, Rhea, Rhea Perlman from Cheers. John Oates, the musician. Stevie Nicks, the musician. Jerry Mathers from Leave It to Beaver. Phyllis Rashad. Felicia. Oh, Felicia. Yes, sorry. Uh, from The Cosby Show. Kathy Bates. You know her from many movies, including Misery. American Horror Story, etc. Richard Simmons. Aw, Richard Simmons. (laughs) Whatever happened to him? Anyways, Richard Simmons, wherever you are out there, God bless you, and I hope you are well. Sally Struthers uh, from All in the Family. Mel Carter, she was on Give Me a Break. John Ritter, Three's Company, and many other things. Avery Brooks. 
from Spencer for Hire. And That's Star, Star Trek. Trek. <laughs> Space Nine. Margot Kidder. God bless you, Margot Kidder. I hope you're well. Uh, uh, she was most famous for Lois Lane and Superman. Uh, uh, three Superman movies uh, with Christopher Reeve. Uh, Kate Jackson from Charlie's Angels. We're almost at the end. Oh, she was the mama E.T. Uh, I loved her in Cujo. Uh, let's see. Samuel L. Jackson, the actor who can't not uh, swear. Uh, and, and that's why I love him. Uh, Nick. Uh, oh, yeah. And he uh, most famous now for Nick playing Nick Fury in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. DJ, what was going on with uh, the film industry? Who was competing with Key Largo? Okay, so in theaters back in 1948, this was long enough ago that uh, we we didn't really keep track of the box office the same way we do nowadays, but uh, in the world of film in 1948 at the Academy Awards, Best Film went to uh, a feature directed by by tonight's director, Mr. John Huston. But for 1948 was a big year for John Huston. It was the treasure of the Sierra Madre. And um, the synopsis of that is, if you haven't seen it, two down-on-their-luck Americans searching for work in the 20s in Mexico convince an old prospector to help him mine for gold in the Sierra Madre Mountains. And of course, yes. it's a John Huston movie. And, and, uh, and by the way, John Huston uh, is also an actor. He portrayed many characters in many of his movies, and then he portrayed characters in other people's movies. And uh, John Huston was the old prospector in uh, Treasure. Mm-mm. And uh, in 48 at the Academy Awards, Best, Best Actress. Now, here's a Star Trek connection for you. Jane Wyman. Now, when I first heard that name, it was because of Back to the Future. And of course, they were talking about Ronald Reagan being the president. And in 1955, uh, the impression was, if Ronald Reagan's president, who was the first lady? Jane Wyman? Because she co-starred with him in a lot of films then. But but, uh, Jane Wyman uh, and uh, later Spock's mommy on Star Trek. I'm uh, playing Amanda Grayson. She, and by God, she 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 went all the way up to the movies, mm-hmm. didn't she? Yes, she did. Uh, Star Trek Four was, I think, her last appearance as Spock's mom. Yes, Jane Wyman won Best Actress in a film called Johnny Belinda, and the story of that is a kind doctor volunteers to tutor a deaf mute woman, but scandals start to to swirl when this pupil is raped and falls pregnant. So that might be a interesting film just um, for the challenge of the the role. Um, also, in uh, she won an Oscar for that. By yes, the way. she did. And uh, also in '48, uh, for Best Actor that year, it went to Mr. Lawrence. I think it was Sir later on, Sir Lawrence Olivier, in his portrayal of Hamlet in a UK film that was based upon the Shakespeare play of the same name. All right, let's get right into the director because there's John Huston. For heaven's sakes, we can't cover everything about John Huston tonight. Uh, but what a character, what a true life character, 
but a legend. Um, and also a man I probably would not have enjoyed knowing personally. <laughs> uh, he was a complicated man with many unpleasant aspects. However, we celebrate him tonight for this particular movie, Key Largo. Born in Nevada. Um, he was an only child. He actually was performing on stage with his father, who was a vaudevillian actor, Walter Houston. And uh, he was doing that at age three. Um, he uh, would travel with his father on the vaudeville circuit and um, and also travel uh, the country and the world uh, with his mother. So he was exposed to many different cultures. Um, but he was a frail and, and sickly child and... Uh, he had an enlarged heart and kidney ailment uh, that just just made him a, a frail child. But uh, by the time uh, he, he grew out of all that, he really made the most of life, um, was incredibly active. Um, uh, by the time he, he was in school, uh, at age 14, he quit school. What did he become, DJ? A boxer! <laughs> yes, that's how much he recovered. And he eventually won the Amateur Lightweight Boxing Championship of California, winning 22 of 25 bouts. So, there you go. Uh, and he broke his nose in the uh, in the ensuing uh, melees. Um, he was also a licensed pilot. And uh, the, the tale goes that, uh, as a prank, he once flew over a golf course delivering a celebrity tournament, uh, or during a celebrity tournament, and he dropped 5,000 ping pong balls on the, on the players. So he uh, never quite got away from acting and his exposure to his father, uh, because he not only did vaudeville, but he was doing, he got into movies. And he was exposed to a lot of the industry. He became very interested in it. And lo and behold, he started writing for the movies. That uh, was the first thing he did. And uh, he, he was pretty good. And he wrote a lot of good stories. And finally, uh, he was regarded well enough by studios to be given his first film to direct. And he wrote the movie, wrote the film. Um, and uh, my gosh, it was the Maltese Falcon. Can't get any more classic than that. That was 1941, also starring Humphrey Bogart. Uh, Peter Lorre was famously in it. And uh, Maltese Falcon was a film noir, as is Key Largo. And uh, it certainly... Um, made Bogart a star and cemented uh, uh, Houston as a director. Uh, so his fifth feature film was Key Largo. Just before that, uh, as we mentioned before, the treasure, he made the treasure of the Sierra Madre, the, the first uh, film of that year in 48. It also starred Humphrey Bogart and Houston himself. Uh, also, it starred his father, uh, who won the Academy Award 
for that movie. And after Key Largo, he was doing We Were Strangers in 49 with Jennifer Jones and John Garfield. And uh, he averaged like a film a year over the next five years, including one of my super favorites, The African Queen, with, uh, once again, Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. He also did uh, The Red Badge of Courage, a Civil War story about war, uh, war and, and a Union soldier who struggles to find the courage to fight in the heat of battle, which is a theme he really loved and returned to. That's a bit of a theme in tonight's movie. Um, and uh, he was a supporter of human rights, and he went up against the Committee for the First Amendment in 1947 and strove to undermine the House Un-American Activities Committee. That was the whole um, heebie-jeebies, uh, commie scare. And uh, a lot of people in Hollywood got blacklisted. It destroyed many a uh, career. In fact, that, that actually disillusioned him so much, he moved out of the United States. He was so disgusted. And he moved to Ireland. And uh, he loved it there. And uh, he went there with his fourth wife. <laughs> uh, he, you know, this man was complicated and had problems. Uh, she was a ballet dancer, and she's the mother of Angelica Houston, uh, uh, an actress that uh, we came to know and see a lot of, I think, mostly in the 80s, right? Yeah, in the uh, mid to late 80s, she was in an adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches, and uh, it also starred some of the cast of Little Voice later on. Uh, Brenda mm -hmm. Blythe and Jane Horrocks were also witches in this film, The Witches, uh, with Angelica Houston. Right. So he um, did eventually direct his daughter, Angel Angelica, in a movie called The Dead, which was his last movie. And uh, she, he also uh, directed his daughter in Princey's Honor with Jack Nicholson. And that movie won Angelica Houston an Oscar. So he directed a movie with his father that got him an uh, got his father an Oscar. He directed his daughter and that got his daughter an Oscar. So I don't know. It's just one of those things that uh, that kind of never happened before and probably never will ever again. Uh, I'll tell you one thing I don't remember. He directed Annie mm -hmm. 1982 with Albert Fenney and Carol Burnett. I did not know he directed that movie. <laughs> Neither did I. And upon researching Mr. Houston, um, that, of course, is noted as one of his off films. It wasn't his most well-received, but, I mean, he had so many people in that film that possibly not having his name as the director couldn't have gotten those stars. I mean, you have Tim yeah. Curry, you have Bernadette Peters, in addition to Carol Burnett and Albert Finney. So, you know, uh, may not have been his crowning achievement, but uh, it certainly gave us a, a piece of delight to hold on to from the 80s. Sure. So, listen, he really was larger than life. You can think of him as 
as the Ernest Hemingway of movies. <laughs> he, he was an adventurer. Uh, uh, there was a movie called The Heart of Darkness with Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas. And it was a kind of, it had a lot of truth to it, but, you know, frankly, it was uh, a lot of fiction. But it was based on uh, what Houston did when he went to Africa. To, and he really did. He took the crew and everybody to Africa to do the African Queen. And basically, he would just leave and go hunting. Uh, because he's John Houston. Anyways, a, uh, an unusual character. I think the my most favorite thing as an actor was his role as the villain in the Jack Nicholson uh, movie. That is completely escaping my brain. Uh, please, chat room. Where? Oh, um. You know what that? Oh, never mind. Uh, pff, uh, oh, please, chat room. Come on. The he was a terrible, awful man with Jack Nicholson, and uh, and he was the the father, the daughter, the father, the daughter of Faye Darling. Well, we'll give them a few moments to ponder that and give you the answer. There you go. While we take a brief break. Okay. Alrighty, we're gonna step on out here to the refreshment bar. Um, while we still have a roof on the building, and Miss um, Dootsie is here helping us out. Woohoo! We're having a hurricane party. Serve yourself some virgin daiquiris while I try to remember how to mumbo. It was very popular in the forties, you know. Hey, this is an interview with Mr. John Houston before his passing in the 80s, and he's talking about working with Humphrey Bogart. I was surprised to read a few days after I got back to California um, that Bogie had recanted. And uh, I talked to him about it when he came back out. He said he, he thought that we had made a mistake in this. I regarded it as a mistake that Bogie did this. He should have stuck to his guns. Houston's difference of opinion with Bogey didn't stop them from working together. They went on to collaborate on two of their best films, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Key Largo, in which Bogey co-starred with Betty for what would turn out to be the last time. I, I felt that Betty was, in a sense, going to uh, to school with, with Bogey. He, he worked with her, and and uh, taught her how to use her voice and, and rehearsed with her, um, taking a great load off the director me I had. A week after he finished shooting The Harder They Fall, Bogey started having painful coughing spells. His friends urged him to see a doctor. When he did, the test came back positive. He had cancer of the esophagus. In those final days, he proved to be as tough as any character he ever played. It was one hour a day, and he, when he, they received guests, and this was observed right up to the finish. And he was too weak to even be lifted down the stairs. He was a dumb waiter, 
and he used to crowd himself into this dumb waiter and uh, come down to the first floor where he was then put into a chair and wheeled into the drawing room and uh, and have drinks and talk and uh, that's the last picture I have of Bogey um, and quite in, in keeping with with the image that that I have him all together. At his funeral a few days later, all of Hollywood came to mourn. The night before the memorial service, director John Huston paid tribute to his friend. And the better I got to know him, the more I admired him. He was a very serious man about his work. He took great pride in being an actor. It's um, a loss to the world, of course, that great talent, but um, the world can refer to it in the pictures that remain behind. The loss to his, to his family and to his friends is therefore all the greater. Um, there'll never be another Bogart. Uh, yeah, that's for damn sure. Uh, um, that was the his distinctive voice. You just heard it. The distinctive voice of John Houston. You, I mean, uh, you, you can't forget it. Uh, uh, he did narrate a lot of things because of his voice. Um, and, uh, um, I, I don't know. You, you you just can't forget that that voice and his presence on film. He really was quite good as an actor, and he was nominated for an Academy Award for a role, and I can't remember what. Uh, but, anyways, um, also in that interview, he mentioned Betty, and that would be Lauren Hutton, who is his co-star in Key Largo, and they were actually a husband and wife. They were married. They met on their first movie, uh, fell in love, <laughs> as as they do, and um, and I guess people say this it was quite a genuine relationship, and uh, they did four really awesome, famous, classic movies together. Key Largo was their last movie together, and. And uh, John Houston mentioned that uh, that a as she did these four movies, she grew as an actress. We're going to talk about her a lot more in just a bit. But TJ, mm -hmm. let's talk about Humphrey Bogart. Okay, so Mr. Bogart, Bogie, Humphrey Bogart. I wonder if his, his wife's called him Hugh, because I don't know. Humphrey just sounds a little stuffed shirt. <laughs> You know what? I never even thought about the shortened name, but surely Hugh would have been it, right? <laughs> I would think. So uh, Humphrey Bogart played Mr. Frank McLeod. McLeod! Uh, <laughs> call back, folks. Uh, go find our episode on Duel. Uh, Mr. Bogart was born in New York City. His father was a surgeon and his mother was an illustrator. She worked for a magazine. 
Bogart beca- uh, began acting in the 30s, and he appeared in over 40 films, 4-0, folks, before he was in Key Largo. And his film just before Key Largo was the award-winning Treasure of the Sierra Madre in 48 with Walter Houston, who, of course, was the daddy, the father of the director, John Houston. After was knock on any door, and this is a story about an attorney defending a hoodlum of murder using the oppressiveness of the slums to appeal to the court. Bogart would appear in 13 one three films over the next five years. He he had to pay for those um, Chesterfield cigarettes, folks. Uh, kind in, of. Including Tokyo Joe in 49. Also in 51, the aforementioned celebrated film with Catherine Hepburn, The African Queen, which I think was the very first time I saw a Bogart film. Okay, cool. Uh, just a quick, super quick story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really was filmed in Africa, and the entire cast and crew came down with um, what's the thing with mosquitoes? Oh, malaria. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, guess who didn't come down with malaria? <laughs> uh, Houston and Bogart. Why? Because they were drinking a lot of uh, booze with tonic Mm. a tonic water is has an ingredient that oh quanine yes that uh, (laughs) staves off that particular problem oh african queen otherwise known as how john houston got a tax write-off for his hunting trip Uh, so in 51 that was the african queen and in 54 he did a film called Sabrina, nothing to do with the Teenage Witch many, many years later. But this was a film with Audrey Hepburn and William Holden, and it's a an enjoyable film that uh, is filmed in Italy, I do believe. Or so. Yes, because, uh, uh, because Hollywood needed to pair Audrey Hepburn with every older man in the <laughs> studio system that they could. Anyways. Right. So, uh, so as to not look short next to his co-stars, like in Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca and Paul Heinrich in that film also, through most of the shooting of Casablanca and in a few of his other films, Bogart wore platforms. He hiked up his shoes under his shoes that added nearly five inches of height to his frame. Now, uh, Bogart had three films on, or has three films on the American Film Institute's 100 Most Inspiring Films of All Time. They include Dark Victory of 39 early in his career, and that was this number 72 out of their 100. African Queen uh, is at number 48 on their list, and Casablanca was number 32 on their list. So three of his films are preserved for posterity in the American Films Institute's archive. Yeah, and talk about a classic. I call him old spitlip. DJ, did you notice how moist his lips were in every scene? <laughs> like he was just, you know, I and I think that's something that was caught in a lot of movies. He just had a lot of oh well i mean i'm not trying to be critical but i could say this because i've had family members who have had various lung related illnesses and i'm sure that some of that sweat had to do with uh you know gasping for air but hey we are here talking about a movie 
Right. <laughs> so now, dis- now you may not know this, but because we like to bring you the uh, the little kernels, the little breadcrumbs of trivia here at Matt Name Minutia, Humphrey Bogart was distantly related to Princess Diana, the Princess of Wales, through her American relations, the Spencers. And he died, well, and uh, sadly, Mr. Bogart died from throat cancer at the age of 57. He was married four times. In the last 12 years of his life, Was he was married to Lauren Vicall. Betty. All right, folks, uh, this... Uh, this movie, uh, a good Lord, what a collection of classic actors, Edward G. Robinson. I just want to say he stormed onto the scene as in little Caesar, uh, where he played a gangster, a gangster, say, yeah. And he did that thing, you know, DJ, yeah, yeah I was a gangster, say, and little Caesar. Anyways, he was so he was such a knockout character that he realized instantly, oh my god, I can't do that again. I'm gonna be typecast. So he did a dozen movies where he played different middle-aged men in very, very different movies. John Houston wanted him in this movie, and he said, Edward, I want you to do Little Caesar again. <laughs> I want you to be a gangster. I want you to do that whole thing you did. And Edward G. Warbison agreed, much to the delight of us all, because he plays Johnny Rocco. Yeah, see, I'm Johnny Rocco. Nobody's Johnny Rocco except me. Yeah, you get it? Yeah. He climbed out of the clink. (laughs) Anyways... Uh, it was the last time he would do that that Edward G. Robinson thing with the cigar and the whole thing. And it is so magnificent in this movie. He was Romanian-born. He was uh, an actor of stage and screen. Uh, he appeared in 30 Broadway plays, kids, uh, and more than 100 movies. And his career spanned 50 years. Uh, and he's just never going to be forgotten for those tough, tough wrong, tough guy roles. Get it? Yeah, say I'm a gangster. Never forgotten for those movies. But he played many other uh, roles, uh, such as the adjuster Barton Keys in 44's Film Noir Classic Double Indemnity. He won the Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Actor for his performance in House of Strangers. Uh, he was uh, uh, in the Ten. Ah, ah, oh my God! He was in the Ten Commandments in a minor role. Yeah, where's your God now, Moses? See, yeah, and uh, his final role was memorable. Uh, as um, uh, a man who remembered the taste of real food in Soylent Green. Uh, He won an Academy Award, uh, Academy Honorary Award for his work in the film industry. Uh, And it was awarded two months after his death in 73. He's ranked number 24 
in the American Film Institute's list of 25 greatest male stars of classic American cinema. And that's that's uh, Edward G. Robinson. Boy, you know, um, I, I think you've made it when they caricature you in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Because I do remember Edward Dean Robinson being immortalized in a Bugs Bunny com, um, you know, cartoon doing that. Yeah, say. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's how in pop culture that role in Little Caesar. I'm like, yeah, say was so I mean, nobody ever forgot it. Mm. So uh, another member of the cast, because, you know, just like uh, Playtime when you're a little kid, the uh, the magic, the talent that makes this movie is the cast. And uh, the next member of the cast is the lovely lady who would be Bogey's blushing bride. I'm speaking of Miss Lauren Bacall, otherwise known as Betty. She was an American actress, and uh, in honor of our uh, member of the chat room tonight, uh, Moran Gertz, I'm just going to briefly mention that uh, there was a time that I lived in the same city as Moran, and she had a gorgeous apartment on an upper floor of this tall building, and the joke was, of course, that because the pool was on the roof, that it was going to, you know, leak in her ceiling, but it, that, that was another part of the building. But we always called her top floor apartment her Lauren Bicall apartment because it was very Hollywood Regency and, uh, you know, something to behold. So anyways, Lauren Bicall, American actress, she was named the 20th greatest female star of classic Hollywood cinema by the AFI, the American Film Institute, and received an Amer Academy Honorary Award from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Scientists, uh, sciences, not scientists, in 09, in recognition of her contribution to the Golden Age of Motion Pictures. She was known initially for her alluring, sultry presence and her distinctive, husky voice. Wish she could read the phone book, folks. Uh... Bacall was one of the last surviving major stars from the golden age of Hollywood cinema. Bacall began a career as a model before making her film debut at the age of 19. As the leading lady opposite her future husband, Humphrey Bogart, in To Have and Have Not, 90 and 44. She was uh, wondering about the to have part then. She continued in the film noir genre with appearances alongside her new husband in The Big Sleep in 46, in 47, Dark Passage, and of course, finally in 48, tonight's film Key Largo. And she starred in the romantic comedies How to Marry a Millionaire in 53, which also starred Marilyn Monroe and Betty Grable, and a film in 57 called Designing Women, which featured Gregory Peck, the, the grandfather of today's uh, Spock on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And she portrayed the female lead in Written on the Wind in 56, which is considered one of Douglas Sirk's Toppy, I think that might be a typo. Seminal films. Now, maybe that Kirk Douglas, maybe. I'm not sure. I'll fix it in not post. Sure. Not but sure. she starred alongside Paul Newman. Ooh, Mr. Salad Dressing. <laughs> in the 66 mystery film Harper. 
and she co-starred with John Wayne, no, the uh, the American hero in his final film, The Shootist in 76. Um, and, uh, you know, John Wayne, he, he punched out John Huston one time, um, but uh, that's another story. By Wayne's <laughs> personal request, he was in The Shootist. Now, also, uh, she worked, uh, uh, Lauren Bacall worked on Broadway in musicals, earning Tony Awards for applause in 70 and Woman of the Year in 81. For her performance in The Mirror Has Two Faces, which was directed by Babs, Barbara Streisand, in 96, she won a Golden Globe. And a uh, BAFTA, which is the British Academy of Fine Television Arts, I think, or something like that. And a SAG Award, which is the Screen Actors Guild, was nominated for Academy Award. And uh, during the final stage of her career, she gained newfound success with a younger audience for portraying major supporting roles in the film's Misery in 90. In 2003, Dogville, in English dubs of the animated films, Howl's Moving Castle in 04, and mm. Ernest uh, Celestine. Now, she also is featured in a film that we discussed just this last year, My Fellow Americans, where she starred oh, right. along with Jack Lemmon and James Carner as her classiest role to date, a former first lady, and if you have no other exposure to Lauren Bacall... Watch that film because she has some great lines, including, oh, Russ, if you're going to use the F word, go for the gold. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we guess we just said this is such a cast. We, we can't exclude the following, but uh, we're going to be short. Claire Trevor, there is an amazing performance in Key Largo by Claire Trevor, who plays an aging uh, singer, cabaret kind of performer who is there at the request of Johnny Rocco. And uh, she's, she's well beyond uh, her fame and Rocco treats her horribly in this movie. And it was such a magnificent performance and her piece in the movie is so good she won an Academy Award for it. And that's Claire Trevor, who was gay. What's her name? Oh, Gay uh, John. Yes, Gay John. Um, and, and she's an American actress. She's appeared in 55, 65 feature movies from 33 to 82. She won the Academy Award for Key Largo. Um, and <laughs> this is cute. Uh, Trevor... Uh, it had been around in movies long enough to be top billed over John Wayne in John Ford's Stagecoach in 1939. And John Wayne insisted that Claire Trevor be in his final movie, The Shootist, uh, where, well, he got top billing. <laughs> Maybe that's why he wanted her. <laughs> he got top billing over Claire Trevor. But anyways, no, they were very good friends. Um, anyways, uh, it, it, it's a great moment in the movie where the singer has to sing a cappella because Rocco is demanding it. And um, she just wants a drink. She just she just wants a drink. All right. DJ, mm -hmm. I tore up that 
and it was supposed to be yours. Oh, well. why don't you two lie and help everyone? All righty. So I think this is the grandpa of uh, today's Drew Barrymore. Yeah. And Mr. Lionel Barrymore, who's a familiar face, because I do believe that he might have been the grumpy old banker in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, he was an American actor of stage, screen, and radio, as well as film director. And he won an American Award for Best Actor for his performance in A Free Soul in 31, and remains best known to modern audiences for the role of the villainous Mr. Potter, oh, well before Harry Potter, in Frank yes. Capra's It's a Wonderful Life from 46. And Mr. Barrymore was a member of the theatrical Barrymore family. I can't even remember who all were. John Barrymore, blah, 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 right down to today's. Everybody knows Drew Barrymore today. Uh, one thing, one thing, just just to mention, Lionel Barrymore had terrible, terrible, terrible arthritis that was incredibly painful. And at one point, he had to be in a wheelchair, which is why in It's a Wonderful Life, he's in a wheelchair. It's why he is in a wheelchair in Key Largo. It wasn't, you know, <laughs> he really needed that wheelchair. It wasn't a prop. So that's interesting. Uh, folks, stand by because this is, this is a whopper. <laughs> uh, Cronehaven in the chat room. Uh, said to us uh, just casually um, personal trivia I rode on a carousel with Mr. Little Caesar so she she elaborates she says it was director's day at Disneyland my family was there coincidentally I don't remember how old I was but I wasn't a little kid my actor brother declined to be so childish. But look who else was on the carousel. Edward G. Robinson, Mr. Tough Guy, and he wasn't afraid to ride the carousel. He was with his grandkids, I think. And my brother never refused to ride uh, the old, uh, the old uh, carousel again. How about that? Thank you, Crone. That's wonderful. What a weird touch with the, you know, a celebrity. Let's chat just a little bit about the movie. I know we're getting on late. I saw this when I was a kid. And the one thing I majorly remember is that I I certainly didn't understand what alcoholism was. And I could not understand uh, the actions or what was happening um, with the character of Claire Trevor. I just didn't get it. I didn't get, you know, what she, why she was so frail and why it was such a big deal for her to sing that song a cappella. Um, and I, I just remember that for some reason. I, I always remember that, but uh, since seen it many times, and it's just such a mood piece. It is considered film noir, um, and. Uh, the tension that builds. I mean, it's really a face-off between Bogart and Edward G. Robinson. And it's just so, it dips and dives a little. Um, There's one moment where uh, we think, oh, 
Bogart's just a jerk in this movie. No. And then it comes back. And both Lauren Bacall and the audience is like, oh, he's not a, you know, there's this whole thing about him. Is he a coward or isn't he? Is he going to stand up to the bully or isn't he? And um, and then the hurricane that's coming down and the subplot with the Seminole Indians who are free, just want shelter and they're denied it by Johnny Rocco. Oh, Gee, there's just so much, and then the the the, the ending, <clears throat> uh, uh, how Bogart uh, achieves this. Uh, well, he gets out from under this impossible thing on that boat, mm-hmm. uh, but he's very clever the way he does it. Uh, 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 that, TG, how how did this hit you? Well, that was one of the reasons that um, sometimes the trailers that were used in those times were a little misleading because they don't necessarily put scenes in the order they happen. So if you do seek out a trailer for Key Largo, the very beginning of the trailer has uh, Humphrey Bogart on the boat radioing for help. And spoiler alert, that doesn't actually happen until movie's almost over. So they're they're sort of setting the the stage, the scene for where he is. The, he's you know on a boat at some point, but he's not actually on the boat until later. So you know it, it was easier for them to put your mind to the setting of of Key Largo off the coast of Florida by showing a boat in the very beginning, but. Um, you know, this, this film was very interesting and it did have an evolution of the characters because, you know, he's a wartime uh, hero, so to speak. He had served his country and now he's going to go visit his buddy's family business, the hotel. And uh, unlike a lot of the other films of the time, he's not, you know... Um, arriving on the scene with the intention of winning over the girl. This no, is, not you know, at all. Certainly, because, you know, this is his old buddy's wife. His, yeah. you know, his friend's widow is the the young woman of the hotel. And so he's not, um, you know, in, in more modern speak, he's not trying to put the moves on her because he understands she's still not grieving. He misses yeah. his, his buddy as well. But... Um, you know, it it was quite interesting to see the um, the crisis of faith, if you will, with Lionel Barrymore's character, the father, the man who runs the hotel, because he's a local businessman, and he interacts with these American Indians, the Seminoles, on a regular basis, and so when he's in a position that the the hurricane's coming, he wouldn't normally deny these people shelter. But here, his place is under lock and key for the storm, and the gangsters are telling him, nope, we, we, you know, we pushed them away. They can fend for themselves. And he was just bereft by this because these are probably friends of his. So yeah. it, it was quite interesting because not all the films, a very few films, from this time period would have considered somebody who wasn't Caucasian uh, to be, you know, uh, worth spending your time with, much less making sure that they were safe. Um, yeah. 
But, uh, you know, uh, Bogart's character, who's also the hero, he also has sort of a mercenary vibe, if you will, because uh, he was more than happy to operate the boat. But uh, what was he going to get out of it? So that uh, that right. that brings you toward the, toward the ending. But it is an yeah. experience going through this with all these classic film actors and these characters. You're not quite sure how they're going to arrive at the ending, and it is an experience. Uh, well said. The core of of Bogart's character is that he he's just survived a world war where his best buddy was shot to pieces. Uh, And when he's giving that speech to Edward G. Robinson and everybody in that room where he says, I'm done uh, sticking my neck out for the other guy from now on for me. It's, it's about me. And it was genuine. He really, he, he really felt that way. That's that's how war turned him uh, it, it, to be like, <clears throat> no, uh, from now on, it's about me. But he's put in this situation where it's not about him, and he, he has to act. And uh, at times, it seems like he's not gonna. And then we find out, of course, at the end. Uh, he he acts heroically um, to foil Edward G. Robinson, and uh, it's very good. Uh, a lot of people watching this movie might notice uh, it's so confined to that one set, and it's because it was based on a play, hmm. and the play very different. Um, I, I shouldn't, I should know the name of the playwright. I should know the name of the writer that worked with Houston to adapt it. I just don't know him right now, but interestingly enough, the play, while this movie is based on the play, it's hugely different. First of all, uh, uh, it takes place in Mexico. The first act entirely takes place in Mexico. The second act takes place in Key Largo. Uh, the character wasn't in World War II. He was in the um, Jeepers, Mexican-American War. I'm not sure exactly, uh, but it wasn't World War II. And <clears throat> the dilemma in that play is one of the things that, that came through in the movie, which was... Uh, the character, the central character, does something to save himself, and his buddy gets killed, and he has to contend with, "Am I a coward?" The rest of his life, and um, and he becomes a hero at the end of the play. At any rate, it's interesting because. Uh, Houston took the play. I don't know what he saw in the play because it wasn't that famous or that big, but he saw something he really liked. And he basically eliminated the entire first act, had it all take place in Key Largo and somehow just to, just made the story uh, what it is on film. 
and um, I don't know. It's one of my favorite movies ever. Mm. Okay. Well, with your permission, Toppy, we'll go ahead and step out here into the lobby as we are almost at the end of our hour. And uh, I, I think that uh, our our showgirl stand-in has uh, got to catch her bus, so we'll we'll let her have her say here. Before right. I go, guys, just a favor, if you will. Take it easy on the old gal. She was doing good for a while there, but last summer she was spotted at the casino trying to spend her sobriety chip. Oh, okay. Was she talking about our our girl? Yeah, I I I, I have it on good authority that Stutzi is actually Gertie's sponsor, so oh. that that's why tonight's drinks were virgin daiquiris. Okay. All there you right. Go. So we are at a part of the show where we talk about what you might enjoy if you liked uh, Key Largo or you enjoy film noir. This is our snack tray. Uh, I'm going to recommend a film from a few years prior to Key Largo. This is a film from 43 that stars Mr. Cary Grant and Peter Laurie. This is a film called Arsenic and Old Lace. It's about a Brooklyn writer of books on the futility of marriage risks his reputation when he decides to tie the knot. Things get even more complicated when he learns on his wedding day that his beloved maiden aunts are habitual murderers. <laughs> and this is a Frank Capra film. So if you like It's a Wonderful Life, this is one of Mr. Capra's films. And it's of that period of the 40s with Mr. Cary Grant, Arsenic and Old Lace. Very cute movie. Uh, I was lucky enough to see it on stage because Arsenic and Old Lace was a famous, famous Broadway uh, play, uh, played all over. Um, and it is just uh, wonderful. Uh, the movie's wonderful, but seeing it on stage is a wonderful experience. And Frank Capper directing that movie was awesome. So good choice, DJ. Uh, I, I just I had a difficult time, but I had to choose the Maltese Falcon which was John Huston's first um, uh, directorial debut. And uh, he wrote a lot of it. Actually, famously, he wrote a lot of the dialogue, The Day of Shooting. It was just one of those weird things that happened um, where John Huston practically wrote the dialogue day by day um, because he wasn't satisfied with the original material. And... I don't know. It just, everything that he wrote became a classic. So uh, Maltese Falcon, 1941, American film noir, written and directed by Houston. Uh, stars hum Humphrey Bogart as investigator Sam Spade. There's a femme fatale, as all film noirs should have. Uh, Peter Laurie has a wonderful role. And um, basically, it's it's a private de detective and how he deals with three unscrupulous adventurers, all of whom are competing to obtain a jewel-encrusted falcon statuette, which is a complete MacGuffin. It has nothing to do with anything, but it made the plot move along. It was nominated for three Academy Awards. So the Maltese Falcon 
just one of those, I mean, you just can't get any freaking more classic hmm. than that. And uh, that's, if you liked Key Largo, go back and visit Fort 1941's Maltese Falcon. You know, you might be surprised to know, Toppy, I have seen Maltese Falcon, although it's been a few years. And uh, this will be a callback because earlier in the season, we uh, discussed a favorite 80s sitcom of mine, Kate and Alley. And uh, there was an episode of Kate and Alley where they um, basically revisit the themes of the Maltese Falcon. They they have sort of a, a mini little adventure episode where they recreate scenes from the Maltese Falcon as sort of... Um, one of those uh, hide-and-seek-finding things. like I think they call it geocaching nowadays. But anyways, yes, Maltese Falcon. Alrighty, sir. So, as we all know, the Marionette is a celebrated venue. Many splendid things came through here, including magic acts. Grab me that bag of coins from up there on the shelf, sir. No. Mm-hmm. Ooh, okay. It landed over there, sir. Can you hand me that? Here's the capsule that came out of the thing. There oh, you go. Okay. Okay, folks. So it, uh, next time we get together, it's going to be Friday, June 3rd. And as we all know, June is Pride Month. And uh, we're going to feature our first film of Pride Month on June 3rd. This is an early 80s drama starring Kate Jackson from Charlie's Angels and Harry Hamlin many a year before he was on Mad Men. A successful young LA doctor and his equally successful television producer wife find their happily ever after life torn asunder when he suddenly confronts his long repressed attraction for other men next <laughs> time on matinee minutia making love very interesting dj mm. i've never seen it and we have a rare opportunity this is a available in many forms and fashions so uh we may actually invite you to take in a viewing of this before our next show so perhaps right. we could do, do we that. have a, a special guest for that one or is that another one uh no that will be our second uh installment okay. of pride month there all right but uh, for those of you in the chat room i'm going to go ahead and give you a link to making love so, Toppy, if you would be a deer, because we are yes. in the in the, the the sticks here out in Spud's Flats, uh, we we have flora and fauna here. Uh, could you look over the balcony and tell me who joined us in the chat room tonight? Uh, folks, we're ever so pleased that we have a live audience when we do this streaming thing live on Friday nights. We've got Billy Starsage. That's your hubby. We have the ever mysterious Cronehaven. We have Lamont Cranston, who's uh, shown up. I hope you got to hear most of it, Lamont. And, uh, uh, well, you can get the podcast if you didn't, if you want to hear more. Uh, Maren Gertz, <clears throat> thank you for being here. And our trusty old pal, Tommy Hashbrowns. Thank you, Tommy. And uh, thank you all for being here. 
Okay. So if you would, sir, uh, please go ahead and uh, say goodnight in the ways of the old days of radio. Uh, Good night, Gracie. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month. Go to univospods.net, click the tower for streaming audio. Enter Discord for our chat room. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Matinee Minutia. Find our group on Facebook. Or visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Have an idea for a show? Or why not let us know how we're doing? Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com. This has been an Alibug production. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univospods.net.